Good morning. My name is Heidi Summers. Please remain standing for the word of God. This morning we'll be reading from Psalm 51. Have mercy on me, O God. According to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions, wash away all my iniquity, and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions, and my sin is always before me. Against you, you only, have I sinned, and done what is evil in your sight. So you are right in your verdict, and justified when you judge. Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time in my mother's womb. Yet you desired faithfulness, even in the womb. You taught me wisdom in that secret place. Cleanse me with hyssop, and I will be clean. Wash me, and I will be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have crushed rejoice. Hide your face from my sins, and blot out all my iniquity. Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore me to the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. Then I will teach transgressors your ways so that sinners will turn back to you. Deliver me from the guilt of bloodshed, O God, you who are God, my Savior, and my tongue will sing of your righteousness. Open my lips, Lord, and my mouth will declare your praise. You do not delight in sacrifice, or I would bring it. You do not take pleasure in burnt offerings. My sacrifice, O God, is a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart you God will not despise may it please you to prosper Zion to build up the walls of Jerusalem then you will delight in the sacrifices of the righteous in burnt offerings offered whole then bulls will be offered on your altar this is the word of God thanks be to God you may be seated So why is what we believe about sin important? Well, it's been said that the only provable Christian doctrine is the doctrine of sin. Just look around our world. Our world is full of war and oppression and bigotry and all sorts of other evils. But not just that, look at the people who live in our world, your friends and family even. And look at ourselves, look at you. You know you and I know me. And we're full of horrible thoughts and all kinds of selfishness. We know ourselves. We know that sin is real, so we have to come to grips with it. We have to admit it's a reality and know that it must be addressed. But if we're also being serious, we know we can't address this on our own. We need to be rescued. Brothers and sisters, good morning. My name is Jeff Leo, 
and I am the pastor of College and Young Adult Ministries here at Lake Avenue. Welcome one more time. Glad that you're here with us. And uh, we have been in this series that we're calling Shared Faith. It is a different kind of series. It requires a different kind of approach from the pulpit. The kind of preaching that happens when we walk through a statement of faith like we're doing, it's called doctrinal preaching. And the great challenge of doctrinal preaching, it's, it's not just that we're trying to communicate to you how deeply we believe in the truths that have been captured in the statement of faith, but it's also our great labor to communicate to you our deep love for and experience of the truths of Scripture in our personal lives. You need to know that we believe this stuff to the core of our being. We're excited about it and we love it. And I think even more than that, it's important for anyone who stands here to give you something to take home. Some kind of good news that's worth sharing with everyone that you know. Excitement. Good news. Got it? Okay. So let's talk about sin. (laughs) I am excited to take on the challenge of preaching the doctrine of sin. It is that thing, that teaching, that makes the good news so good for us. It tells us of our deep need for God. But the doctrine of sin is not the preacher's opportunity to point his fingers at you, to point his fingers at sinners either in here or out there, it's, it's not that kind of an opportunity. No, I believe that when we preach the doctrine of sin, we actually face the most critical moment in the life of the church where we are to point to the goodness of God and Jesus Christ. That's the opportunity that we have before us. In fact, I'm not sure that talking about the doctrine of sin actually will hold our attention. I think talking about the holiness of God will hold our attention. Because when I think about what we do when we talk about the doctrine of sin or the fact that we're sinners, I think we think to ourselves, okay, we've heard that before. In fact, what it really takes for us now is to talk about or hear about on the news some really awful kinds of evil and sin. It it takes reports about ISIS to rouse our attention. It takes a sandy hook to make our hearts yearn again for some kind of justice. But when it comes to the stuff that we deal with personally, well, that I deal with personally, life goes on. We are told that we're sinners. But life goes on. Maybe a a finger will be wagged in our face when we're confronted with something that we've done, but life goes on. If you've grown up in the church, you've heard a lot of sermons about the dangers of being ensnared in sin, but then Monday comes and life goes on. No, I, I don't think that sin captivates our attention, and I don't think it deserves to. Not the way that the holiness of God deserves to capture our attention. 
So our job this morning as we talk about the doctrine of sin is to look squarely at the beauty of God's holiness, to be captivated by that, and when that happens, we will also face squarely the reality of our fallenness from His glory and will feel our sense of need. I think by the tender age of three, my children got tired of me asking them questions about what is sin and who is Jesus I mean, you know when you're talking to your kids when their minds are somewhere else. I know. So, why did Jesus die on the cross? Sins. What is a sin? It's bad. Yes, but tell me what is a sin? What, what is it like? Well, it's when you're mean, when you do something bad. And what did Jesus do for us on the cross? And this is where they get happy. My daughter said to me, Oh, that's the good part. He took our sin and he gave us his goodness. Now, can I style your hair, please? You remember that? I do. I mean, you can kind of tell when their minds are somewhere else because the doctrine of sin doesn't captivate. I really hope we don't fixate on it the way that we focus our attention on the goodness of God. In fact, if there's anything that you walk away with, it's not just that sin is serious, but sin is so serious because God is so good. He is so good to us. This is what David knew when this psalm was written. This was his experience of the God who loved him. And so we look at Psalm 51 together. I so deeply long for us to take something out of this psalm, something worth sharing with everyone that you know, that I want to ask you now, brothers and sisters, would you join me in prayer? Heavenly Father, as we approach your word, to have it explained and applied to our lives, we ask that you would come by your Holy Spirit, open our minds, open our hearts, teach us what it is that David knew about you, Impress upon us your power and your holiness that we might be changed by it, pinned beneath it, lifted up by it. God, would that be so? We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. You know the story if you've come to church for any length of time because it is one of the Bible's most scandalous episodes. Perhaps the most scandalous episode of any political figure, David, walking out on his balcony one morning, seeing a woman taking a bath. He decided, I must have her, as if she was property to be taken. He had her brought to the palace, and then he lay with her. She became pregnant, but she was married. Her husband, Uriah, was sent to the battlefield by David. David should have been at the battlefield. For some reason, he wasn't. But it didn't suffice for him to be sent to the battlefield. He was sent to the front line, where, of course, the first battle, he was killed. Now, Bathsheba could be his and his alone. The prophet Nathan confronts King David about his sin. And the moment David realizes what he had done, as if a blinder had been removed from his eyes, he has 
this reaction that we read about in Psalm 51. You can find our text on page 675. You might want to turn there because we'll be in and out of this text all morning. This is what David says. Have mercy on me, O God. According to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. David has this reaction. He turns to the God he has known since he was a child. There is only one place to turn. It is to God. It is no use hiding. You see the same spirit that wrote Psalm 139. Where can I go from your presence? If I go up to the heavens, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. The same spirit which inspired those words inspires Psalm 51. There is nowhere else to turn. In your worst moments in life, there is nowhere else to turn. I think about worst case scenarios all the time. And apparently... One of my mentors took notice of this fact, and he decided to buy me a book. I don't, know, I don't know if you can see this, but this is called the Worst Case Scenario Survival Handbook. It's a, it's a novelty item, but I, I, I look through every page, because there are some really good things in here. One of my favorites, How to Wrestle Free from an Alligator. I know how. And if you find yourself in the jaws of an alligator, I invite you to give me a call. The receptionist will forward you to me, and I will help you. Some of the solutions in here are entirely intuitive. They totally make sense. They're very common sense. Some of them you wouldn't know unless you read the book. And so I'm always thinking about worst-case scenarios, and one of them that comes to mind frequently, especially when I'm in the park with my kids, is um, what to do when bees are around. Now, my strategy, I think it's a pretty good one, is that. This is my strategy, right? So I'm at the park and I'm, I'm doing my moves, and my son calls out to me, and he taught me this great lesson. And I'm, I'm really thankful that you taught me, buddy, because what he does is he... He pretends like he's a stalled out robot. And he says to me, Dad, you're not supposed to move. And he's got this grin on his face, like he knows exactly what he's doing. And I'm going like this. It's like, no, Dad, that's not what you do. You do this. And a bee is buzzing around his face, and he's the picture of calm. That is not intuitive to me. But he got it right. David, since he was a child, knew that the right response, it had been trained into him from the time he was a shepherd to the time he faced Goliath to now in the depths of his own guilt. He knew the right response and his faith didn't fail him. His faith didn't fail him because he turned to the God that Israel had known from its very beginning. In fact, the words in verses 1 and 2 are drawn, they're borrowed from the book of Exodus, chapter 34, where in verses 6 and 7, this is what it says. He passed in front of Moses proclaiming, The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands, and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. 
This episode occurs when Moses is coming down from the mountain and he has the law of God in his hands. And this is the God that they recognize and they begin to worship. This is the God that they know. He is the forgiver. He has grace and mercy in his hands. To whom else can we run? David knew that. And so he ran to God. Have mercy on me, O God. Because of your unfailing love, this special word love that doesn't have a great translation in English, but refers to his great promise keeping, his faithfulness unto himself and his word, his love for his people that never ends and never fails. This kind of love that he has for you and for me. This is the covenant love that he has and to which we are always supposed to turn. We were meant for this. But we have, instead, a number of other kinds of reactions. You know, if if you just surround yourself with people who tell you you you're doing fine, who send you messages on Facebook that you're great, and if you tell me after this weekend your sermons was wonderful, even if it wasn't, I'll believe you, because I desperately want to. But what, what David says in verse 3 is, my sin is always before me. I, I don't need it to be made to go away. I need it to look up. I need God to draw my face heavenward. That's what he says, and that's what God can do for us. And if we don't, if we allow ourselves to think that everything's okay, our conscience It becomes a little easier and easier for us to do the same thing over and over again. And so the scriptures, the psalmist even says, Today, if you hear God's voice, do not harden your hearts, but respond to Him out of faith. Give this stuff that you're feeling over to Him. We can also tell ourselves, Listen, Jeff, I am not an adulterous murderer like David. But David says something really strange in verse 4. He says, against you and you only have I sinned. It's a strange thing to say because he just murdered and committed adultery. There's a lot of other people involved in this. How could he say against you and you only I have sinned? But there's something that you need to know about what sin is. We may wrong each other, hurt, maim, and kill each other. But when it comes to God, there is one word for what we do to him. It's sin. And so against God and God only has David sinned. The kind of peace and shalom, goodness, truth and beauty that God desires to bring into this world is exactly the kind of thing that we oppose when we sin. God wants to make things right. Our sin opposes that process. Who is it that we stand against when we sin? However small we think our sins are, it is God Himself. That is what creates the problem of sin and forgiveness for us. Sin is shalom breaking. Sinfulness is shalom resistance. And all of us are resistant. We would not be having this conversation if God didn't care about the shalom he wants to bring. The last is to think to ourselves that we're basically functional, we do things right most of the time, but occasionally we will do a sin. 
But David says, from my mother's womb, I was sinful. There's something inside of us. It's not just sinful acts that we do, but it's a sin sickness that infiltrates all of our mind, body, and soul, leaving us powerless to do anything that is good. So Article 3 affirms what the Bible teaches, that we are sinners by nature and sinners by choice, powerless to do otherwise. So what does David do after he realizes this? What does David do after he invokes God's promise of being God? He stands back, just like you and I should do, and he beholds the power of God. Look at verses 7 through 12. All these verbs are not something that we do, but they're something that God does. David knows to ask for these things. In 2 Samuel, when David finally confronts Nathan, or Nathan finally confronts David, David says to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan replies like this, the Lord has taken away your sin. Is it really that easy? Does it really happen like that? Let's not get confused here. Even if forgiveness is possible for you and me, it's hard, but it's possible. We can forgive each other, but we cannot even begin to fathom the costliness of forgiveness to God that it would cost him his own son. One of the pastors that changed my life by what he wrote, John Stott, he wrote this. If we bring God down to our level and we bring ourselves up to his, then naturally it doesn't make sense for us to call for a kind of radical solution to our problem, let alone a radical atonement. It doesn't make any sense at all. But when we have glimpsed the blinding glory of the holiness of God, And we tremble because of the conviction of our sin by the Holy Spirit. And we acknowledge what we are. Then and only then does the necessity of the cross appear before our eyes. So obvious that we are astonished we never saw it before. It enables us to cry out during the holy season of Easter, Hosanna! Save us, Savior! Only when we realize the depth of our need does salvation become something that we recognize. And so look at all the work that God has to do for us. Cleanse me. Wash me. Let the bones you have crushed rejoice. Create in me a pure heart. Who among us can do that on our own? God is the one who creates even our own pure hearts. He's the one that's free. David is the one with no options, no way out, nowhere to run. No hope apart from God. In fact, he feels the depth of this hopelessness in his body. He says, my bones are crushed and only you can help me rejoice again. I feel it in my body, the weight of my sin. You see, it's not so much that we have a God-shaped hole in our heart as if maybe that missing accessory that we could find could make us complete. Rather, we have a God-sized problem burning a hole in our very soul about which we can do nothing apart from the grace and mercy of a loving God. 
And so we sing with Martin Luther. Did we in our own strength confide? Our striving would be losing. We're not the right man on our side, the man of God's own choosing. Do you ask who that may be? Christ Jesus, it is he. Lord Sabaoth, his name, from age to age the same, and he must win the battle. He has the power to win. We do not. When was the last time you felt powerless like that? I grew up in a landlocked state, so I'm still relatively novice when it comes to the power of the ocean. Um, My son, he's a very cautious guy. Uh, And there's a picture that I'm going to show you here that captures perfectly how he feels about the ocean. Do you see the concern on his face? He, he likes the ocean now. He's fine. But my daughter and I, we love to run in, right, to the waves. We love it when the waves kind of lift us up and set us back down, right? It's fun. But one time, you remember this one time? The waves were getting taller and taller, and they were over my head. Remember, it picked me up, and I didn't want to let you go because I was, I was worried about where you would go if the wave took you away. So I held on to you, and, and then the wave pushed us underwater. Remember that? And it just held us there for a while. And then we came back up and you ran away to the beach. That was the last of our beach day. It kind of ended. That that was scary. We are mere toys to the ocean. Able to be swept away. Powerless to do anything. The Bible describes this. The Apostle Paul writes, By our evil desires... We are dragged away and enticed. And there's nothing we can do about it. Almost like it's a force external to us, pulling us. But as we've just described, it's a sickness within us, driving us at the same time. We're so powerless to choose what's right. We have to talk about sin in two categories that encompass the entire realm of possibility. The one we're familiar with talking about, we talk about sins of commission. These are the things that we do that we probably shouldn't have done. The ways that we talk to our spouses that we shouldn't have. The ways that we talk to our coworkers or the things that we did at work or at home or even in private that we shouldn't have done. We're familiar with this. But the other category is sins of omission. Sins of omission. These are the things that we have neglected to do. The things that we have left undone. It's that person that we pass by. And we thought to ourselves, maybe I should do something, but then we don't. It's that neighbor that we saw yesterday or last week, and we think to ourselves, maybe I should do something, but we don't. It's the many things that we know that we're supposed to do when we open up the Bible, but we don't. And that's one aspect of sins of omission. The other is, there's so many things we didn't even know we were supposed to do this week that were left undone. The invisible people that we didn't even know were there who are crying out for mercy and we didn't know about them. The more we turn away from these things, the easier it is for us to continue to forget. What it reveals to us is that we don't actually hunger and thirst for righteousness the way that the Scriptures and Jesus calls us to hunger and thirst for righteousness, to really care that the kingdom of God would come down. 
It reveals to us that. But when, when we are crushed beneath the holiness of God and He raises us back up, what does it enable us to do? We first, as we take that breath of air again, we utter praise and thanks for the salvation that God brings to us. And in verses 13 through 19, David commits to seeing that God receives his due praise. Brothers and sisters, our communities were meant to praise God. That's what we do with our essential, essential connection of worship. We praise God together. And in verses 18 and 19, God's people are to sing of his mighty salvation. David invites God to do good to Zion and to Jerusalem. And when that happens, praise is supposed to erupt you will see these sacrifices of the righteous. Now, it's not just that, but King David knows that he's responsible for his people. His own wickedness could bring punishment on the entire people. It runs throughout the Old Testament. It's what we call corporate guilt and corporate sin. As David goes, so Israel goes, and he becomes worried that were he not to teach transgressors not to sin by his own repentance and renewed lifestyle, there would be blood guilt. That his own people would be consumed in war. You see, it turns out that the Bible is right. We are our brothers and sisters keepers in this life. We are the keepers of those who are most vulnerable among us. And boy, I wish I had learned that sooner. When I was growing up in Oklahoma, we had this uh, really big backyard. Now we have no backyard. But we had this big backyard, and in it was this rickety tool shed. The kind that horror movies are made out of, you know, that kind. It stank of gasoline, because that's where we kept the lawnmower. And I really didn't want to go in it ever. Because it was always infested with bees. We're back to bees again. <laughs> I think there's an entry in here on bees. Well, I'm a child. I'm playing, minding my own business. And the bees start coming, not just the little ones, those big round ones that make the loud buzzing noise as they approach you. They're very intimidating. And they begin to seek me out. And I'm running to and fro, doing my best to do this. There is safety inside the house. And so I run. I make it to the back door. I throw open this heavy sliding glass door. I come inside and I shut it. I breathe a sigh of relief. Thank you, Jesus. And then I turn around and I realize my brother's still outside. And he's banging on the window because he's too little to get the door open. And the bees, they're getting him. I don't know why. I mean, I'm laughing about it. I, <laughs> I was supposed to be my brother's keeper. And every time we turn our back, we drive a wedge where shalom should be. Where my brother and I should have been close brothers in that episode. My self-centeredness and cowardice drove a wedge. Our sins of omission, they are part of our closing ranks and turning our back to those who we know are in need. We turn our backs on each other, even in this congregation, our neighborhoods around us, and to a world 
that is on fire with the consequences of sin. But I have hope, brothers and sisters. I have hope. I have hope in God and what God does. I have hope for 52,000 unaccompanied minors at our border. Do you know what brought them here? They are fleeing countries with the highest murder rates in the world. And the violence that they experience in their countries is actually an export from Los Angeles. And I have hope for them because David identifies what he calls the sacrifices of the righteous. People who have been captivated by the goodness of God who have seen God do good to them and can only do good to others because of their gratefulness and what God has wrought in them. I have met many of you who are these righteous. Your hearts are soft to God. And they are soft to each one of His precious creations, even the most vulnerable among us. I have hope because people of faith are responding to the dire needs, the dire situation that these miners are in. It's not just that your hearts are soft because you've seen the blinding glory of God. It's because you've given Him your life. And He's taken it from you. And He did this thing called redemption in which He completely repurposed who you are and what you are for His own purposes. And He's begun to set you in a new direction because of your repentance and faith. And now, a redeemed people becomes a light to others. That has been my job for the last five years here at Lake Avenue. Because you see, when I was in college, I lived for four years in direct disobedience to God, who quietly but consistently beckoned me to a different life. And I told Him no for four years. So it is my privilege now to help college students and young adults to say yes to God and for the life He wants them to lead. I spent too long saying no and I'm encouraged every time I see a college freshman say yes because I was unable to when I was one. That is the job of the redeemed, pointing to the coming kingdom of light. That is our job together as brothers and sisters. So I want to close with this. Theologian Miroslav Volf describes the kind of world that he sees coming. And I want to invite you to imagine it with me. These words are beautiful. He says, a world of perfect justice is a world of love. It is a world with no rules in which everyone does what he or she pleases and all are pleased by what everyone does. A world of no rights because there are no wrongs from which to be protected. A world of no legitimate entitlements because everything is given and nothing is withheld. A world with no equality because all differences are loved in their own appropriate way. A world in which desert, those things that we deserve, plays no role because all actions stem from superabundant grace. Is this the world that you long to see? Because, brothers and sisters, this world is coming. 
It will come with Jesus Christ who descends upon a cloud, with a host of angels behind him, and with a kingdom of justice and mercy that will come from heaven to earth. All who long for Jesus appearing and for righteousness and justice, for a kingdom of peace and shalom, they will be vindicated. But our sinfulness sets us against this coming shalom. So, brothers and sisters, if you hear his voice today, if you hear your sinfulness in the light of a holy God, do not harden your hearts, but place your life in the rescuing, renewing, reconciling hands of God in Christ. That is our only hope. And at this time, I want to begin to lead us into our opportunity to respond to this good news, this gospel, that we have a hope for our sinfulness. We're going to take communion as we do every first Sunday of the month. So I want to give to you what I have received, that on the night that Jesus Christ was betrayed, he took bread. And after having given, given thanks, he broke it, saying, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after the supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink of it in remembrance of me. For each time you eat this bread and you drink this cup, you do show forth my death until I come back. Communion this morning was an opportunity for us to proclaim to each other and to the world we need Him. Even if this is your first time feeling the conviction of sin by the Holy Spirit, today, this is your response. Cling to the power of God in Christ. I want to pray for us as we approach the table. And then after I pray, we will spend some time in silent confession. So let me invite you to right now pull out your kneelers and to kneel. After some moments in silence, we will pray together a prayer that has been prepared for us on the screen. Brothers and sisters, let us pray. Great and holy God, we acknowledge your presence here. And the closer you come, the more the heat of your holiness we feel in our very bodies. Lord, we repent. We are truly sorry. And in these moments of silence, we ask, come, speak to us a word of reassurance that you love us. Here on our knees, let us pray together. Most merciful God, we confess that we have sinned against you in thought, word, and deed by what we have done 
and by what we have left undone. We have not loved you with our whole heart. We have not loved our neighbors as ourselves. We are truly sorry and we humbly repent. For the sake of your Son, Jesus Christ, have mercy on us and forgive us that we may delight in your will and walk in your ways to the glory of your name. Amen. Brothers and sisters, come to the tables. Receive the elements together. A gluten-free table is to my right, your left. And please, hold the elements so that we can partake together.